Let the old way return. Aaron Dampere had struggled back to shore, full of fierce resolve. He would bring down Euron, not with sword or axe, but with the power of his faith. Padding lightly across the stones, his hair plastered black and dank across his brow and cheeks, he stopped for a moment to push it back out of his eyes. And that was where they took him. The mutes who had been watching him, waiting for him, stalking him through strand and spray. A hand clapped down across his mouth and something hard cracked against the back of his skull. The next time he had opened his eyes, the damp hair found himself fettered in the darkness. Then came the fever and the taste of blood in his mouth as he twisted in the chains, deep in the bowels of silence. The Forsaken was an unexpected chapter that went in unexpected directions. Rarely in the history of Preview, A Song of Ice and Fire chapters, has so much been revealed, and rarely has so much excitement been generated. Yeah, we've seen preview chapters from characters whom most would consider more important, like Arya, Sansa, and Theon. Even Barristan seems more important than Aaron Greyjoy, really. But in terms of being a witness, well, the Dampere is seeing things we never saw coming, things we didn't think were even possible. And one of the reasons this chapter is so great is that the POV feels the same way. He shares our shock and awe. He didn't see these things coming either. It's a good thing we don't have to share his chains. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome back to History of Westeros podcast. This is a really exciting episode we have to bring to you. We wanted to get it out sooner, but hey, it's, it's out now and we're happy about it. This chapter is a long time in coming. We first heard about it back in 2012. George offered a reading audience the chance to hear this chapter or Ariane 1. Back then, Ariane 1 had never been read, so both those chapters were new. The crowd chose Ariane 1, fine choice, but George never offered that chapter, the Aaron chapter, again for years and years and years. Never got mentioned again. Didn't offer to read it, didn't actually read it. But we were at Balticon. We knew there was going to be a reading. We set our expectations low because, you know, it's just smart to keep your expectations mm -hmm. low, I think. And sure enough, he offered to read. Not only did he offer, but he gave us a choice. It was like a chapter's moot. <laughs> yes. And, and this one won easily. Yeah, and this is probably the biggest chapter to be released from T.Wow so far as of July 2016. Yeah. Now, the only thing I didn't like about the chapter is that it makes me want the Winds of Winter even more. Yeah, it was really <laughs> great to see it live. Uh, George's reading of it was amazing. But it was also really great to have a transcription of it to analyze after the fact. And you can find a transcription of it um, from Poor Quentin. That's the best one out there. We'll include a link to it in the YouTube description. Definitely. Yeah, there's some other transcriptions out there that aren't as good. They're have, they have some mistakes in them. This is the, the highest quality one, in our opinion. Uh, before we get started, a shout out to our Patreon Dragon Riders, Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, Rider of Mazala Cartho, a green dragon, or rather a white dragon with green scales, talons, and wings. Now, also, thanks to Rory, the subduer and tamer of the last of Valyria. Uh, rider of the Dragon Vrath Race, a silver and gold dragon with purple eyes, wings, and scales. And talons, of course. <laughs> Let's not forget the talons. Also thanks to Jeff Gnarly the Longsnapper, a History of Westeros' first sword on Patreon. Thanks a lot, guys. Now... Let's talk about where and when this chapter starts off with. We'll break it out in sort of a chronological perspective at first. This chapter would have fit well in A Dance of Dragons. In fact, it almost was in A Dance of Dragons. This is a quote from George's Not a Blog. 
Just kicked Aaron Dampere's scraggly arse out of Dance with Dragons. He had only the one chapter, and it will work better early in the next book than late in this one. That's how it looks to me today, anyway. I reserve the right to change his mind. Well, he didn't change his mind. Yeah, honestly, this would have been fine back in Feast for Crows, too, with the other Dampere chapters. Yeah. Uh, since Aaron expects that his death is impending, this might just be the last time that we see Aaron. Although we expect all of the pre-release chapters in The Winds of Winter to be early in the book, this seems to confirm it. Yeah, definitely. The chapter itself is not linear. Uh, it's essentially covering the time just after the King's Moot to just before Euron's upcoming conflict with the Red Wine and Hightower fleets. Something we also are very excited for, by the way. Uh, yeah, uh, the fact that Falia Flowers is just beginning to show her pregnancy at the end of the chapter implies that at least eight weeks have passed since Euron took the Shield Islands. It could easily be a bit longer, though, as it could have been weeks before she got pregnant. Definitely. We only know that it's been at least eight weeks. It could be more. Uh, the chapter ends with Aaron tied to the prow of silence after spending time in the dungeons at what is almost certainly the Isle of Pigs, one of nine small islands near the arbor that you can see on this map from the Lands of Ice and Fire. If you are watching this on YouTube or listening on Acast using the Acast player, you can see what we're talking about. That's pretty awesome stuff. We learn in Feast that Euron has taken many of these small isolated holdings to use as naval bases to prey on shipping, including places like Mermaid's Palace, Bastard's Cradle, Horseshoe Rock, Stone Crab Bay, and the Isle of Pigs. Pigs! Said another vile creature, the one they called the Red Oarsman. This was their isle, a rock just off the arbor. They dared oink threats at us. Redwine, oink. Hightown, oink. Tyrell, oink, oink, oink. So we sent them squealing down to hell. It's hard to line this chapter up with Victorian's The Winds of Winter chapter, but since it was planned for the end of A Dance with Dragons originally, perhaps Victorian's presence at the Battle of Fire lines up with Euron's upcoming battle with Hightower and Redwine, which we are going to dub the Battle of Blood for reasons that will become clear. Regardless, what we know here takes us past what's been seen in other chapters. It's long been predicted that Sam would be witness to some of the Ironborn plot, given their attempts to take Old Town, and this was part of what made this chapter surprising. Yeah, not only do we see Euron through Aaron's point of view, but we do not see the Iron Islands at all. Right, many believed Aaron would be attempting to unseat Euron, preaching against him and fomenting revolt. Though it's hard to see how such a plotline would deserve a lot of screen time. Yeah, now we see that it won't happen at all, or on screen or off. <laughs> Aaron did intend on devoting his energy to bringing down the brother who mistreated him so badly, and Victorian has betrayal in mind as well, though it is widely suspected that Euron anticipates this, as he may have anticipated Aaron's betrayals. The captains and kings raise Euron up, but the common folk shall tear him down. He promised Victorian. I shall go to Great Wick, to Harlaw, to Orkmont, to Pike itself. Every town and village shall my words be heard. No godless man may sit the sea stone chair. This conversation first happens at Feast, from Victorian's point of view, but then, here in The Forsaken, we see it again via Aaron's memories, and confirm that he went straight to the sea after speaking with Victorian. So, if Euron did not anticipate the betrayal, then the implication is that Victorian unwittingly told him. Him or Aaron's drowned men, who claim Aaron is hiding on Great Wick right now. And of course, they are among those who believe the drowned god will cast down King Euron. Yeah, both Asha and Victorian are among those who think that Aaron is back on the Iron Islands, and they both think about how Aaron is preparing to rebel against Euron. But someone figured it out, from the Wayward Bride in A Dance with Dragons. I think the damn pair is dead. 
I think the crow's eye slit his throat for him. Ironmaker's search is just to make us believe the priest escaped. Euron is afraid to be seen as a kinslayer. Who is this genius? Christopher Botley, of course. Of course. Now, Christopher's easy to make fun of, but he actually appears to be pretty smart, brave, skilled, actually. But still no match for Euron. <laughs> so, part one, Euron. Though this is an Aaron Dampier chapter, the feature is clearly the crow's eye himself. We learn quite a lot about him, his plans, and even see visions of his future. We already knew many things about him, and there's too much to cover it all here. Enough so that we'll be releasing an episode devoted solely to Euron, where we put all those pieces together. Yeah, for now though, we're going to be focusing on the newest parts only, and we'll tease some of the things that we will be diving into in that Euron episode. No man is more accursed than the Kinslayer. And yet I wear a crown and you rot in chains. How is it that your drowned god allows that when I have killed three brothers? Euron could only gape at him. Three? Now, we've all absorbed Westerosi culture so thoroughly that this is almost as shocking to us as it is to Aaron. Yeah, there were several moments during the reading where the crowd, ourselves included, couldn't help but react audibly to what George read. And this was one of those moments. I think my eyebrows bumped the ceiling a few times, too. See, a brother killing a brother to take a lordship is one thing. There's a massive reward. Lords in Westeros are like demigods, and Balon was a king. In the Game of Thrones, this is a familiar move. Balon was the third, but you knew that. Yeah, we did know that. Yeah, we did. <laughs> it's like that line was written for the reader as much as it was for Aaron, really. I could not do the deed myself, but it was my hand that pushed him off the bridge. And that's no surprise, and it confirms what Christopher suspects. That Euron is completely willing to kill his kin. He just doesn't want it known. It also confirms that Euron used an assassin, which is widely believed to be a faceless man. So that's also not a surprise. Right. But killing two other brothers? And for no tangible gain whatsoever. Wow. That is a big surprise. Aaron freaked out about Euron as king from the get-go, and pretty much no one listened. Now, the more we learn about Euron, the more right Aaron looks. The more fitting his chapter's first name becomes. The Prophet. Yeah, and he didn't even know Euron killed Harlan and Robin at that time. It's interesting to note that those two both had serious health problems. Were they just easy targets, or from his perspective, was he putting them out of his misery? Maybe a little both. Excuse mm. me, mayhaps. mayhaps. <laughs> Make of that what you will. <laughs> now, Aaron doesn't seem to dwell on that aspect himself. I mean, it wouldn't matter to him. When you've seen the sides of Euron that Aaron has, you don't lack for reasons to despise him. Yeah. It's long been suspected that Euron abused Aaron. The phrase, scream of a rusted iron hinge, appears several times in Aaron's other two chapters. It's associated with a door opening, fear, and hatred. But we couldn't just learn that this was true and leave it at that. No. <laughs> we had to also learn that Aaron's terror went beyond himself because Euron abused Euron in a similar fashion. Yeah. Now here comes one of the creepiest, most shocking lines. It's psychologically brutal. It was me who taught you how to pray, little brother. Have you forgotten? I would visit your bedchamber at night when I had too much to drink. You shared a room with Euron high up in the sea tower. I could hear you praying from outside the door. I always wondered, were you praying that I would choose you, or that I would pass you by? He taunts him about these traumatic visitations while simultaneously undermining him and mocking his faith. It's awful stuff. 
But we could just leave it at generic molesting either, which is awful enough. No, we also get specifics. Yeah, the Red Oarsman seems to refer to this. Now Leighton Hightower's sons move down the whispering sound in hopes of catching us in the rear. You know what it's like to be caught in the rear, don't you? Said the Red Oarsman, laughing. How exactly did the conversation go when Euron bragged about molesting his brother? <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily a reference to the molestation because of that, but yeah. maybe so. I think it probably is, but I can see where it, what it might not be. Whether it is or not, though, Euron knows how to hit the sensitive spots. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Face palm. He's an expert manipulator with no scruples. Some hate him, some love him, but he dominates both types. He gives me gifts. So many gifts. Silks and furs and jewels. Rags and rocks, he calls them. The crow's eye puts no value in such things. That was one of the things that drew men to his service. Most captains kept the lion's share of their plunder, but Euron took almost nothing for himself. We saw him give away a considerable hoard at the King's Moon, but that's part of the tradition. It was this chapter that taught us that it's normal practice for him. He seems to keep only the artifacts like Dragonbinder and his sweet, sweet armor. The Ironborn seriously loved the loot, so by giving away as much as possible, he earns, well, buys, the loyalty of as many as possible. This is nothing new, of course. We've seen the role of wealth throughout the series in many places, but the Iron Islands are particularly poor, so I'm thinking this strategy probably works a little better there. Yeah, and not only does Euron set himself above the other captains by being the most generous, he also sets himself above them by disdaining the very wealth that they lust for. With this... Shall we call it strategic generosity? The picture of Euron is beaming clearer, and we can make some comparisons both in and out of world. I say Stannis is a bit similar in this regard. He's not a naturally generous man, but Stannis emphasized the importance of winning and keeping the loyalty of the nobility by being open-handed. Overall, though, Stannis and Euron don't really have much else in common. No, that's about... There's one other comparison we can make, maybe. But this, this chapter really drives home the point that no one in Westeros or Essos is like Euron, really. There's some comparisons we can make, but they only go so far. There's some real-world leaders who were extremely generous, extremely violent, and extremely charismatic we like uh, as parallels to Euron. Attila the Hun, Charles Manson, for example. Those are two really good examples, I think. Attila was also unconcerned with him adorning himself with wealth. He eschewed wealth. He didn't uh, look. He didn't bling out, basically. <laughs> and he killed his brother to take control. Hmm. And then he led his people to conquer farther than they ever had before. Wider and far. He had a great vision. Hmm. Meanwhile, Manson is one of those people who proves that being crazy doesn't mean that you can't be smart or clever. While he was disgusting and violent, he nonetheless had, and still has, Fanatical followers. Yeah, dude's still alive in prison getting attention. It's crazy. But he, he seemed to believe he was Christ. Not unlike Euron's own aspirations to godhood, thinking, you know, I, you should worship me, etc., etc. They're all pretty familiar. Plus, Manson did plenty of LSD, while Euron does plenty of Shade of the Evening. <laughs> That's my favorite comparison between the two. <laughs> now, Manson supposedly had an incredible ability to ascertain people's psychological weaknesses to bend them to his will. Yeah, Euron displays this... Uh, Gift, as well. You can see it in particular with Aaron and Victorian, in part because he knows their traumas so well. He caused them, after all. Yeah, it works on a large scale, too, with men he doesn't even know personally. There are some qualities among people that are so common you don't need to see them to know they're present. Greed and ambition, for example. Golden gems you can trust. But other things Euron gives, eh, not so much. We learn that Euron's strategy with the Shield Islands is not a long-term one. 
It was a way to back up his talk of being the best qualified to lead, a distraction to the armies of the Reach while Euron headed for the real prizes, and a way to get rid of some Ironborn standouts who could cause him trouble down the line. You know, in other words, strong Ironborn who weren't on necessarily fully loyal to him. Because he knows, like any good ruler, be they Attila, the, the Hun, or Stannis Baratheon, again, <laughs> that you have to solidify your rule. This means getting rid of threats to your authority, or at least watering them down. Salt watering them down? No. Nice, nice. Or no, not nice. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> the shields have served my purpose. I took them with one hand and gave them away with the other. A great king is open-handed, brother. It is up to the new lords to hold them now. The glory of winning those rocks will be mine forever. When they are lost, the defeat will belong to the four fools who so eagerly accepted my gifts. Each of these so-called four fools is either a threat to his authority or his claim, or someone important to someone who is a threat to his authority or his claim. Right. He offered them something irresistible. So irresistible that they were unable to perceive the trap. Each of these new lords has very few men, and the Reach has plenty. And Euron doesn't plan to help despite what he says, so... Mm, so that's that. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they'll hold up for a while because the Reach lacks ships in the area, but eventually they will be overwhelmed. Yeah. All in all, it's ruthless and sneaky, though even Victorian figured out this particular poison gift, so if Victorian <laughs> could figure it out, it can't be that sneaky. <laughs> Good point. Uh, one of the many wow moments in this chapter was the realization that we were seeing inside Euron's own flagship, Silence. Seeing inside a major villain's lair is always a little exciting, I think. Yeah, it's like it's a bit like when we saw Dragonstone for the first time because there were villainous overtones in that chapter, even though Stannis isn't a villain. But even more, it's like when we saw the Dreadfort for the first time in The Winds of Winter. I mean, in the Dance of Dragons. And indeed, Euron has several things in common with Ramsay. <laughs> Instead of more traditional torture, pain, and false hope... The Bolton way. <laughs> Euron's methods are more about deprivation, psychological torment. They both use it to bend people to their will, but Ramsey uses brute force methods because, yeah, pain is universal. Euron seems to be able to read people's souls in order to manipulate them. <laughs> He's a little more insightful, perhaps a lot more insightful. Yeah, and plus he seems to have broken some very strong-willed people, such as those warlocks. Yeah, uh, as much as Euron endures in this chapter, he never... Euron. As much as Euron endures in this chapter, Euron doesn't endure much, he's just... All full of himself. He never truly complains, let alone breaks. In fact, he asks questions and repeatedly tries to give commands to everyone around him, including Euron himself. Yeah, and this is despite horrible swelling in his feet, his arms being chained so that he cannot move, and him having cuts all over himself that are repeatedly immersed in salt water. Yeah, he doesn't seem to consider the pain as unbearable. He merely acknowledges that it's just awful. It's, it's you know, it's kind of like just how he's Ironborn. <laughs> it's, uh, the Ironborn are... A people who grow up in a bleak place where suffering and pain are commonplace, even when compared to the rest of Westeros, which is not exactly a paradise. <laughs> yeah. Looming larger than Aaron's culturally bred tolerance for pain is his faith. He repeatedly tells himself that he's being tested, and his faith in the drowned god is the anchor to that inner fortitude. A weaker man might have wept, but Aaron Dampier prayed, waking, sleeping. Even in his fever dreams, he prayed, My god is testing me. I must be strong. I must be true. He also knows that if he dies, he will feast in the Drowned God's watery halls. To someone with that level of faith, death is not scary because the wonderful afterlife awaits. Yeah, though he never breaks or loses his resolve, he is ready for the torment to end, especially after hearing that Victorian, whom much of his hopes rested on, had gone east. 
I have been your true and leal servant, he prayed, twisting in his chains. Now snatch me from my brother's hand and take me down beneath the waves to be seated at your side. But no deliverance came, only the mutes to undo his chains and drag him roughly up to a long stone stair where the silence floated on a cold black sea. To a man who does not seem to believe in the gods at all, all gods are lies. It's important to remember that Euron is a manipulator, so we can't really take everything he says at face value. Denying that the gods exist at all could be part of how he torments Aaron. Maybe he didn't even kill Harlan and Robin. I mean, he probably did, but again, they were both likely to die anyway, so Euron could just be taking credit. I believe he really killed them, and I believe he means it when he says the gods are lies. That yeah. said. Yeah, and these two things are linked. When the life went out of them, I went out and pissed into the sea, waiting for the god to strike me down. Funny to think about how Aaron was famous for his pissing before he became a holy man. Here we see Euron doing the same godless pissing. Godless pissing definitely sounds like some sort of punk band or something, yeah. In a world where magic is real, it's interesting to consider a man who doesn't believe in gods. Aaron thinks Euron is mad, but Euron's beliefs are... Rational? <laughs> in a twisted sort of way? Very twisted. Uh, he keeps doing horrible things, including killing holy men of various faiths, looting temples, etc., etc. And no god has ever done a thing to stop him. None of them. Yeah, it's like his evidence, right? <laughs> if your drowned god did not smite me for killing three brothers, why should he bestir himself for the fourth? Yeah, makes sense. People often follow those braver than they are, and by challenging the gods, in a sense, and winning... Well, Aaron is horrified, but others are impressed. Euron must be special, right? And so he gains followers while keeping his slaves intimidated. Understanding that men follow bravery is something that Euron is a master of. And he understands that since the Ironborn are a seafaring culture who prize seamanship and going where others won't dare, well, going against the gods is a whole different kind of braving uncharted territory. Right. And speaking of uncharted territory, part two. To Valyria and beyond. One of the reasons that this chapter is so epic is Euron's loot. Where he got it is still unconfirmed, but there are some really amazing items. An iron crown with shark teeth for points is pretty crazy enough, but the real bombshell was the Valyrian steel armor. Euron Crozai stood upon the deck of silence, clad in a suit of black scale armor like nothing Euron had ever seen before. Dark as smoke it was, but Euron wore it as easily as if it was the thinnest silk. The scales were edged in red gold and gleamed and shimmered when they moved. Patterns could be seen within the metal, whorls and glyphs and arcane symbols folded into the steel. Valyrian steel, the damp hair knew. His armor is Valyrian steel. In all the seven kingdoms, no man owned a suit of Valyrian steel. Such things had been known four hundred years ago, in the days before the doom, but even then, they would have cost a kingdom. I don't know about you guys, but I felt like all the brutality in this chapter made this reveal extra awesome. It was just all this, like, intense, wow. And then there's this really cool armor just comes near the end of the chapter, like part of a mini climax as Euron heads out to sea to do battle. Yeah, and this isn't just the first appearance of Valyrian steel armor. It's the first time it's even been mentioned or even hinted at. Yeah, so we're going to talk just a minute, have a quick discussion about how cool this armor was yeah. and what it might mean, what it could head to. 
Yeah, who could end up with it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, if Euron dies and someone takes it, I mean, it might just sink to the bottom of the sea, but <laughs> it might be captured and someone else could end up wearing it. Like, uh, you had one idea, Yeah, right? one was John. Uh, potentially, there's a quote where he was armored in black ice. It's like a vision dream kind of thing. It'd be great to see John in that armor. Yeah, black ice it could be what we're seeing there. Um, there, It's possible, you know, the properties of this armor are a little more than we think. Obviously, it's light and really hard and thick, yeah. probably like mithril from Lord of the Rings or something like yeah, that. Yeah, people keep theorizing that it is fireproof or dragon flame proof, but to, uh, to me, its lightness and strength seem like enough. And I think there's an interesting potential similarity here in the world of Ice and Fire, as we hear of a historical figure called Balon Blackskin of the Age of Heroes, who wasn't harmed by swords. Right. So there's a few references that, that could be like a, you know, a way that history has remembered uh, Valyrian steel armor, but we just don't know. So it's really interesting and, and it's just really cool. I remember sitting there, I, I was near uh, Nina Friel from uh, from Tumblr, uh, Good Queen Alley on Tumblr, and uh, Jeff from uh, Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, and I was near something like a lawyer, Jim as well, mm -hmm. and it's just like everyone just like exclaimed when this moment happened. We were all looking at each other like, whoa, <laughs> unbelievable. So We'll be talking about him and a bunch of other historical parallels in our upcoming Euron Greyjoy episode, Balin Blackskin, that is. There's a lot of other little tiny tidbits there, but they're a little outside the scope of this episode. And we've, like I said, we've got so much to cover, so we set that for later. Yeah, this armor didn't just impress all of us at the in the reading. Uh, it also settled a lingering question in Aaron's mind. Euron did not lie. He has been to Valyria. No wonder he was mad. Now, Aaron is convinced now, it seems, but it remains hard to believe in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'm not so sure we should actually be as convinced as he is. Yeah, so do we think that he actually went to Valyria? Aaron's perception has changed, but I'm not sure that ours should. He already claimed to have been there and found Dragonbinder, which is banded in Valyrian steel with Valyrian runes, and, and one theory is he got it elsewhere, such as from the Warlocks. Well, wherever he got that, he could have gotten this armor, too. And the dragon egg he claims to have had. This, all this loot could have, you know. Yeah, I think that's likely. Uh, whether he went there and found this loot or stole it from someone else or both, it is fun to consider this. What other sweet ancient artifacts might Euron have? Hmm, yeah. There's maybe some other Valyrian steel items, possibly? Yeah, yeah. Specifically, uh, Lord Celtigar is rumored to own a Valyrian steel axe. Possibly Euron has one of those, or a horn like the one described here in Davos V, A Storm of Swords. Lord Celtigar had many fine wines that now I am not tasting. A sea eagle he had trained to fly from the wrist, and a magic horn to summon krakens from the deep. Very useful such a horn would be, to pull down Tyrashi and other vexing creatures. It might seem random to bring up the Celtigar loot of all the possibilities, but how Celtigar has the blood of Valyria. That's right. They do. Uh, they seem to have migrated alongside the Targaryens just before the Doom. So they brought those items with them, most likely. So those are probably Valyrian artifacts. Now, if we want to stretch the possibilities a little further, perhaps Euron has a glass candle? It's, it's possible. Yeah, it was also an item used in the Freehold, after all. We actually talk about glass candles again later in this episode, too. Yeah, we'll be back to that possibility. And we needed to bring up these items of power relatively early in the episode because their existence, as well as what the heck they can actually do, remains in doubt. So it's good to keep all this in mind as the visions and plans unfold, especially the visions, where there are horns and krakens and dragons as well. <laughs> we'll get there. Just keep in mind, if you find yourself asking the question, what will Euron do about something or another, X? <laughs> he might have something entirely unexpected up his Valyrian steel sleeve. 
good. We can only wait on what that might be though. What we have now are the things that he quite openly tells or shows us that he has. Some of them are presented subtly, others are forced down our throats. When Aaron tried to spit it out, his brother tightened his grip and forced more down his throat. That's it, priest. Gulp it down. The wine of the warlocks, sweeter than your seawater, with more truth in it than all the gods of Earth. Shade of the Evening has several names. Wine of the Warlocks is what non-warlocks call it quite often, and Evening Shade is a shortened version. This chapter gives us a second point of view who has imbibed the stuff, allowing us to corroborate their experiences, which helps us understand it better. Yeah, to be fair, Danny seems to have had a small glass, while Aaron had more than a large glass forced on him, in an already deprived and weakened state. Still, despite those differences, we should look for similarities in their visions based on the devices and imagery George R. R. Martin chooses. It could prove quite telling. Hey, actually, it has proved quite mm. telling. We know that already because we're not just reading this episode, you know, off the skin of our noses here. <laughs> this is not, we didn't just make all this up on the spot. <laughs> and since we know Euron got his cask of Shade of the Evening from Pyat Pri, and Danny got hers from him as well. They could be drinking from the actual same batch. Yeah. <laughs> the Victorian, actual same cask. Victorian also tried this batch, but he spit it out. Yeah. The most obvious comparison first is the taste. First Daenerys. The first sip tasted like ink and spoiled meat. Foul. But when she swallowed, it seemed to come to life within her. She could feel tendrils spreading through her chest, like fingers of fire coiling around her heart. And on her tongue was a taste like honey and anise and cream, like mother's milk and drogo's seed, like red meat and hot blood and molten gold. It was all the taste she had ever known, and none of them. And Aaron, It was thick and viscous, with a taste that seemed to change with every swallow. Now bitter, now sour, now sweet. In both cases, it starts out terrible and becomes pleasant. I guess Victorian just needed to give it a chance. He spat it out too soon. As an aside, this, as we note in our Werewood episodes, is extremely similar to Bran's experience with Werewood paste. Or Jojen paste, if you prefer. <laughs> also, similarly, Evening Shade is made from the inky blue trees seen around the House of the Undying. Essos and Westeros both have... Similar vision trees, apparently. Yeah. As I said, we talk about this more in our episode on werewoods, and it's really just fascinating stuff if you ever yeah. listen to it. Yeah. Now, I don't know if eating lots of werewood paste would turn your lips white and red, or if Jojen paste would make them turn green. But we do know that eventually, if you drink enough shade of the evening, your lips turn blue. Yeah, Euron <laughs> has progressed to this point. Like the warlocks, it may be a regular thing for him, and maybe even an addiction. Euron hawked and spat. The spittle struck his brother's cheek and hung there, blue-black, glistening. Euron flicked it off his face with a forefinger, then licked the finger clean. Do we have to include that quote? Ugh. Just so gross. Yeah. Aren't, 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 isn't that weird, though? Aren't humans strange? I mean, this chapter has so many horrible, horrible things happening, but somehow this, this snot moment is the grossest. Definitely. Definitely <laughs> the grossest to me. If we can manage to get over that, though, we can ask a few questions about this, like... Does it mean something? Does this show us that Euron finds the stuff precious enough that he doesn't want to waste it? Can't say it with a straight face, even. Is it part of the psychological torment of Euron or us readers? Is Euron himself addicted? Hmm, addicted. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, if the warlocks are, which would also make sense, it would make it easier for him to control them. Though the brutality is certainly explanation enough. Anyway, these are not questions we can answer yet, but they are certainly worthy of consideration. 
It's interesting to note that Daenerys sees things in the House of the Undying right after drinking her glass of shade of the evening. While Aaron doesn't see a thing until he falls asleep. Now, this is further complicated by the fact that as Aaron's deprivations continue, he starts to lose track of the difference between awake and asleep. And now a shout out to our own Patreon Ironborn Captains. There are now three in our fleet. The esteemed Kathleen the Ruthless, Captain of the Night Terror, an appropriate title <laughs> for this episode. Also, Black Matos Stormrider, Captain of the Rusted Hinge. Hey, another right on target yeah. name there. And Rebea, Lady of Waves, Captain of the Iron Shadowcat. Mm. Thanks to... All Patreon supporters, uh, you can learn more about how to get a cool title and nickname like that by going to historyofwesteros.com and clicking on the Patreon link in the upper right corner. Part 3. Dreams, Visions, and Hallucinations. Understanding the wine of the Warlocks and Aaron's mental state means we can move on to the visions slash hallucinations, perhaps the centerpiece of this chapter. As a whole, they are dark and terrifying, and of course they should be. Aaron is in torment, physically, psychologically, even existentially, in the hands of the person he fears most in the entire world. Yeah, that's not exactly a happy place. And nightmares could be expected. But these are not just mere dreams, since they are heavily fueled by Shade of the Evening, which, as we just saw, is basically magical trip syrup. Euron <laughs> forces his brother to drink it twice during the chapter, and both visions show us amazing and epic and disturbing things. Yeah, these two dreams are close together in the chapter, but they are far apart in chronology. The first dream is a bored silence on the way to the Shield Islands before they are conquered. And think about that. And all that time in the Shield Islands chapter, Euron <laughs> is in the silence and nobody even knows it. The second is many months later, after the shields are taken and given away. After Euron has been raiding the arbor and the area around Old Town. So Euron's lips won't be turning blue anytime soon. But that doesn't mean that the dreams they bring aren't epic. The first one starts with what is arguably, for Euron anyway, the worst thing possible. One thing that mixes really terribly is psychedelic drugs and horror. If you've heard the term bad trip before, this is that, but turned up to 11. We should expect his dreams to contain visual manifestations of his deepest, darkest fears mingled with the physical and psychological pains that he's enduring. And when the damp hair slept, sagging in his chains, he heard the creak of a rusted hinge. Yuri! He cried. There is no hinge here. No door. No Yuri. His brother Yurigan was long dead, yet there he stood. One arm was black and swollen, stinking with maggots. But he was still Yuri, still a boy. No older than the day he died. You know what waits below the sea, brother? The drowned god, Aaron said. The watery halls. Yuri shook his head. Worms. Worms await you, Aaron. When he laughed, his face sloughed off, and the priest saw that it was not Yuri, but Euron. He's a rather close-minded guy, Aaron Dampere. <laughs> yeah, zealots don't normally reflect on the possibility that their entire religion is fake. It just doesn't cross their minds. It's a nonsense concept when you believe something so completely and thoroughly. However, as we just saw, Shave of the Evening is supposed to do that sort of thing. It takes your mind to places it wouldn't normally go, removing those same mental barriers you had in place, making the nonsensical seem possible. For some, it would be eye-opening, a revelation. Aaron's barriers, however, were a comfort. They're a source of strength for him. Yeah. Now, Uragon is the one that Aaron thinks of most when he thinks of death. He was closer to him than to his other brothers, and his death was horrifying and traumatic. But he has always taken solace in the fact, and to him, it is indeed a fact, 
that when he dies, he will be re reunited with Yuri in the Drowned God's watery halls. But in this dream, there is no paradise, no afterlife, no Yuri, only worms and Euron's laughter. It's unbelievably soul-crushingly scary, I think. Yeah, uh, I think the only thing keeping him sane, not just here in the belly of the beast, but in general, is his faith. And this vision is showing him that his faith is a lie, that heaven is fake. It's, yeah, the worst thing possible. Yeah, again, though, it's magical trip syrup. Sure, we have to account for the overwhelming circumstances of Aaron's situation and his deepest, darkest fears when breaking down his dreams and visions, but we also have to remember that there's real foreshadowing going on during these visions. There are hints of the future of A Song of Ice and Fire in this chapter, and they begin next with Euron's blood eye. Euron, the smiling eye hidden. He showed the world his blood eye now. Dark and terrible. His blue eye is called his smiling eye. We knew that already, of course. But apparently his black is called his blood eye, and that's new. Theon described it as... Shining with malice, but apparently Aaron has a nickname for it. You know you've made it big when both of your eyes have nicknames. <laughs> <laughs> black and blood. Same as the silence and same as his personal sigil. But back to the vision. Clad head to heel and scale as dark as onyx, he sat upon a mound of blackened skulls as dwarves capered around his feet and a forest burned behind him. Now, the scale as dark as onyx could the Valyrian steel armor. Which Aaron hadn't seen yet, pray recall, so that does make it prophetic. Yeah, which is the kind of detail that we're trying to hone in on here. Right. A vision of his brother on the Iron Throne may not tell us a lot because Euron's already made it crystal clear that he wants it. The damp hair already knows of this ambition, so him dreaming of it, you know, that makes sense. But if he dreams real story elements that he doesn't have awareness of, like Valyrian steel armor that he hasn't seen yet, then this indicates that this is magic, not nightmare. Or, or both, yeah. yeah. <laughs> In this case, we, it, we could be meant to see a tie to dragons, which would also count for the blackened skulls and burning forest. The burning forest could instead portum, portend, portum? portend doom for the old gods, or portends my inability to speak. <laughs> now, skulls are a bit vague, but climbing to power through killing is a pretty simple fit. Now, Corsairs and Pirates are also known to leave skulls at an uninhabited place called Skull Isle in the Basilisk Isles. Euron could be easily called a Corsair or Pirate King, and so this could maybe tie in somehow. As for the Dream Dwarfs, we've seen them before and we'll see them again. The again is later in this chapter. The before is here, in A Clash of Kings, Daenerys IV. In one room, a beautiful woman sprawled naked on the floor, while four little men crawled over her. They had radish, pointed faces, and tiny pink hands, like the servitor who had brought her the glass of shade. One was pumping between her thighs, another savaged her breasts, worrying at the nipples with his wet, red mouth, tearing and chewing. Ah, also a shade of the evening vision. Dwarves are always popping up in these. <laughs> <laughs> now, this has commonly been seen as a metaphor for the five kings tearing apart Westeros. The woman is Westeros. The four dwarves are the kings left after Renly, who is dead by the time Danny had this vision. Yeah, so it could be that we first have Danny through a shade vision, see Westeros torn apart by kings, only to later have Aaron through a shade vision, see Westeros torn apart by her meaning Danny, or her dragons at least, with Euron. The dwarf's capering around his feet, implying he's ruling over them. But again, Euron has just announced to Aaron that he's going to conquer the world with Dragon Queen, etc., etc. This is all stuff he knows. So it's hard to be sure it's prophetic and not just, you know, him imagining the worst. 
I'd say that we lean towards prophetic, though, right? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I, I def definitely. Maybe not purely 100%, but very strongly. Aaron's future is just a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> now, here's a line that we wish we had for our episode on the comet. Oh, yeah. The bleeding star bespoke the end, he said to Aaron. These are the last days when the world shall be broken and remade. A new god shall be born from the graves and charnel pits. This is perhaps a huge line. Charnel pits are basically pits filled with bones, and graves are obviously related or similar. So one might see this as relating to armies of the dead. Is this telling us that Euron knows the others are coming, that a new long night could happen or will happen? Or is it a metaphor for tearing up Westeros in order to rule it, as a conquest would surely involve filling many graves and probably creating a charnel pit or two? Could be both, right? Yeah, yeah. He may know the end is coming and plan on taking advantage of the Great Chaos. That makes sense. Euron may have a greater connection to the others than we think, or at, you know, at all, or to Bloodraven, or to the Werewood Network. Yeah, in general, there's a lot of magic and mystery surrounding him, which means a lot of theories. <laughs> These we will discuss in our Euron episode, as they and they just deal with quite a few chapters, not just this one. We can't fit it all. Either. Yeah, we, we don't want this episode to get too, too large. We like mm -hmm. big episodes, you guys like big episodes, but gotta, gotta draw the line somewhere. <laughs> now, some think... Euron, of all people, will be the one to bring down the wall. He does have quite an association with horns, after all. Yeah, <laughs> such as the one that comes next in Euron's dream, the dream horn. Then Euron lifted a great horn to his lips and blew, and dragons and krakens and sphinxes came at his command and bowed before him. Plural. Dragons and krakens and sphinxes. Oh my. Now my first question is, are these literal or metaphorical or both? Well, looking at them individually, two of them seem at least somewhat straightforward, whether literal or figurative. The first two, starting with dragons. We know Euron is intending to go after Dra Daenerys, a metaphorical dragon, as well as one or more of her literal dragons via Dragonbinder. While it could be that simple, let's not forget that young Griff is out there too. Yeah, as for Krakens, the Greyjoy Kraken bowing before him is clear enough. He's certainly dominating his own family and people. I'm getting a little excited because I think there's a chance we'll see a real Kraken in the Winds of Winter. This is really fun. First, think of Lord Celtigar's supposed Kraken horn. Then consider all those priests on prows. We'll get into other possibilities for those priests later, but for now we're going to say that many of them involve spilling blood. Yeah, poor priests. So we have horns and blood as a path to real Krakens. Yeah, we have here from Ariane 1 in the Winds of Winter... And Krakens off the broken arm, pulling under crippled galleys, said Valina. The blood draws them to the surface, our maester claims. So with blood, or a horn, or both, this could be how Euron is planning to beat a larger and slower enemy. He knows the area. Right. The seas south of Dorne are where Euron's fleet is set to meet the Red Wine and High Tower fleets, and, from the World of Ice and Fire, the Dorne section, the seas south of Dorne are rife with whirlpools and infested with sharks and kraken. Hell yeah! <laughs> this could be a lot bigger than a single naval battle, though. He has his eyes set on Old Town, and ruling the seas could be part of the plan, especially if he plans on keeping it. And now this brings us to the third creature bowing to Euron when he blows his dream horn, Sphinxes. Now, as you might guess, we scoured the hell out of all the sources for mentions of sphinxes, because unlike dragons or krakens, there's not a lot to go on here, but far from nothing. One of the major hits is Maester Aemon, who says a lot of prophetic slash insightful things. It can be hard to tell them apart sometimes. <laughs> just before his death. From Samwell 4, A Feast for Crows. He spoke of dreams and never named the dreamer. 
of a glass candle that could not be lit and eggs that would not hatch. He said the Sphinx was the riddle, not the Riddler. Whatever that meant. Yeah, whatever that meant indeed. You, you can say that again. Whatever that meant. <laughs> I didn't mean it. The <laughs> fandom has been puzzling over that line for a decade yeah. without much success due to lack of evidence. This mention of Sphinxes in the Forsaken chapter, in a vision no less, has rekindled this open question. That said, it's still fairly hazy, though. We, we mostly found sphinxes used for decoration. Flanking doorways or roads or bridges is usually a male and a female pair, though. That's interesting. Yeah, and these appearances go as far back as early in A Game of Thrones. It's kind of a dead end, but we're not without ideas here. We know Euron wants Old Town, and we've established already that he doesn't just want it for loot, so we should look at other connections like this. From Samwell 5, A Feast for Crows. The gates of the citadel were flanked by a pair of towering green sphinxes with the bodies of lions, the wings of eagles, and the tails of serpents. One had a man's face, one a woman's. So the sphinxes bowing to him may just indicate that Euron has, design, has designs on the citadel, a place with artifacts. This could be our metaphorical sphinx. Or it could be the literal version. They aren't really alive, but they are real, real statues. <laughs> we surely don't know of any living sphinxes ever. However, Elio Garcia told us that unreleased material, probably from the winds of uh, the world of ice and fire, actually, indicates rumors that the Valyrians made sphinxes with blood magic. Well, that is simultaneously creepy and awesome, a lot like this chapter in general. I don't see Euron making any sphinxes of his own or getting any from elsewhere. Yeah. So let's look at a few more of the metaphorical kind. First, we have a quote that at least gives us an idea of what a sphinx even is, as they vary even in our own real-world myths. This is from the prologue of A Feast for Crows. A sphinx is a bit of this, a bit of that. A human face, the body of a lion, the wings of a hawk. Alaris was the same. His father was a Dornishman, his mother a black-skinned summer islander. His own skin was dark as teak. And like the green marble sphinxes that flanked the citadel's main gate, Alaris had eyes of onyx. Okay, so we do know of one living sphinx, the Red <laughs> Viper's fourth daughter, Sorella, pretending to be a man named Alaris, which is Sorella backwards. Real mm. sly. <laughs> Sam doesn't think she has anything to do with the riddle, and we don't see how she would either, despite her identity being a riddle of sorts. However, she is even male and female in a manner of speaking, and as we said, sphinxes are almost always seen in male-female pairs, but still, it's thin right now. Yeah, she could be a red herring. Maybe we'll learn something new about her. And maybe she'll become an important part of Sam's arc in Old Town. You know, we've barely just gotten to know her so yeah, far. I hope so. Now here's another quote that stuck out to us from Tyrion II, A Dance with Dragons. The next evening they came upon a huge Valyrian sphinx crouched beside the road. It had a dragon's body and a woman's face. Dragon queen, said Tyrion. A pleasant omen. Her king is missing. Illyrio pointed out the smooth stone plinth on which the second sphinx once stood now grown over with moss and flowering vines. The horse lords built wooden wheels beneath him and dragged him back to place Dothrak. Her king is missing, you say? Well, Euron aims to fill that role, though I doubt he intends to share power with her. Given the common interpretation of animals as representations of certain houses, based on their sigils, we're all used to that, we should consider that angle here. Especially because throughout these examples we've seen a variety of sphinxes with differing animal parts. There's a lot of different types of sphinxes, but they all have human faces. Yeah. Though that one seen by Illyrio and Tyrion had a dragon's body, we observed that the body of a lion is a common feature, and we both thought of Tyrion's Lannister heritage. Now, if both of his parents are indeed lions of Lannister, then this just doesn't fit. 
But if the controversial Tyrion Targaryen theory is true, then he may be a sphinx. Yeah, it fits even better when you recall that Tyrion was rumored to have a tail when he was born. <laughs> the rumor would also say that tail was cut off, which would be a clever metaphor for concealing his dragon parentage. <laughs> Coming into contact with Euron would fit, since Tyrion and Euron both have a lot to do with Daenerys. So <sighs> Now this makes me worried about Tyrion's tongue, as we know he says things that get him into trouble, and we know Euron is quick on that trigger. The tongue-cutting trigger, yeah. <laughs> Little do we know, before this chapter even came out, Reddit user Hamfast42, who we met at Balticon, hey buddy, crafted the quiet lion theory. Yeah, this theory suggests that Tyrion would lose his tongue to grayscale, and shows a lot of apparent foreshadowing throughout the books for Tyrion eventually losing his most valued asset. Hamfast may have had the right idea well in advance with the tweak of, sub of subbing Euron in for grayscale as the culprit. It's well worth the read. There really is a lot of foreshadowing there. Yeah, so he may, yeah, exactly. He may have figured it out, but not realized that the, the main reason for Tyrion to lose his tongue hadn't come on screen yet. So, yeah, it looks, it fits pretty well, but yeah, it's scary. God, we really don't want that to happen to Tyrion. <laughs> but continuing the theme of parts being cut off, because we're dealing with Euron, that's where we're at, as Reddit user Ben Arbles, Ben Arbles, I don't know, points out the great Sphinx in Egypt, like Tyrion, also lost its nose. <laughs> Sphinxes in the real world and in Westeros are associated with riddles. And wouldn't it fit pretty well to call Tyrion's heritage a riddle? Maybe, maybe not. Some people don't think so. But surely yes. that idea applies to others. I think it's possible. You know, yeah, so. so let's move on to them, as it's not much fun to dwell on terrible things happening to Tyrion. <laughs> now, John is a wolf and a dragon, most likely, most certainly. Uh, was Aemon referring to him? We're kind of dubious, but it bears mentioning. If John is some sort of Sphinx figure, could he really be dominated by Euron? Because remember, that's what these Sphinxes are doing. They're all kneeling before Euron. And yeah. John kneeling before Euron? I don't, I don't know. I don't see that. Tyrion kneeling before Euron? That I can I'm, see. Be, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Joking. Uh, though dragons and serpent bits were common enough among the Sphinxes described in the sources, none of the Sphinxes we saw had wolf bodies. No wolves anywhere. So maybe that doesn't work. Furthermore, this undead John we're, we're probably talking about here, not, you know, regular John. <laughs> so who knows how this interaction could go down. It's all yeah. hard to see. Also, some of us might not call John's parentage a riddle. It's more like an open secret waiting to be confirmed. <laughs> That's right. And no one in the story itself, as in the characters in the story, are talking about John or Tyrion's heritages. That's all things that only we fans do so far. That could change. I mean, John's parentage is probably going to come up in the story at some point. Then people will be talking about it. But at this point, eh. yeah. yeah. Right now, they're not at all riddles. But there are quite a few characters in the story who question whether Aegon VI is truly Rhaegar Targaryen's son. Mm. Now, he's presented as young Griff, and a griffin is a bit like a sphinx. Yeah, hell, maybe the Valyrians made those two, <laughs> the griffins. But he might be a dragon. And even that is... Or that part is a riddle. Yeah. Is he red or black? Yeah, riddles within riddles. Problem here is that Danny is the slayer of lies, right? Isn't she going to be the one to take down Aegon the Sixth, whoever he is? Maybe we should consider alternatives after all. We can also consider what a sphinx means to Aaron, since it's his trip we're breaking down. <laughs> but honestly, we've got nothing. We don't have a basis for what... Aaron thinks of sphinxes. Yeah, Aaron thinks to himself about how he isn't exactly well-traveled, so there's no indication he's ever been to Old Town, though he does seem to clearly know what a sphinx is. So the sphinxes are certainly a riddle within this greater riddle. <laughs> Sphinxception. <laughs> so let's move on to Euron Godslayer. Kneel, brother, the crow's eye commanded. I am your king. I am your god. 
Worship me, and I will raise you up to be my priest. Whoa. Is that really what he's after? <laughs> Does he want Aaron to be the high priest of the Crow's Eye Church? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess he's going to have to try harder, because the damp hair is not so easily converted. Never. No godless man may sit the sea stone chair. This is actually one of my favorite moments of this chapter. Aaron yells his catchphrase, no godless man may sit the sea stone chair. He always loves to say that. Showing his defiance in his dreams while heavily dosed. That's a tough guy right there. Like, he's drugged, he's in the middle of a dream, and he's still like, no godless man makes it to see stone chair. <laughs> but the Euron trying harder part does happen. The dream gets worse, even though Euron admits he doesn't even want the sea stone chair, and indeed it never appears in any of the dream visions. The mound of skulls was gone. Now it was metal underneath the crow's eye. A great, tall, twisted seat of razor-sharp iron, barbs and blades and broken swords, all dripping blood. Impaled upon the longer spikes were the bodies of the gods. The maiden was there, and the father, and the mother, the warrior, and crone, and smith, even the stranger. They hung side by side with all manner of queer foreign gods. The great shepherd, and the black goat, three-headed Trios, and the pale child Bacalon, the lord of light, and the butterfly god of Nath. And there, swollen and green, half-devoured by crabs, the drowned god festered with the rest. Seawater still dripping from his hair. Wow, that's crazy. It's our first visual image or description of the drowned god, but it pales in comparison to the idea that all of these gods of the world are impaled on the Iron Throne by Euron. This is a good time to remind everyone that the Iron Throne is huge. If you're picturing, it's easy to picture the TV version of the Iron Throne, but the real, you know, book canon version is a lot bigger. So the point there is that you can fit quite a few gods on it, I would think. <laughs> the old gods don't appear. No tree is impaled that we can see, but there was that forest burning in the earlier vision. Yeah, now this hmm. part of the vision could be an extension of the previous nightmare concept that the drowned god is false. Instead, it's bigger than that. All the gods are false. Hmm. But it could also be evidence that Aaron is actually seeing the future filtered through that nightmare lens of captivity and deprivation. The gods impaled on the Iron Throne could be a direct parallel to Euron tying priests, representing many different gods, to the prows of his various ships. Yeah, this seems to be the stronger interpretation, but Martin gives us multiple meanings all the time, so we should avoid limiting our options. Mm -hmm. It does explain the lack of the old gods, since there are no priests of the old gods to tie to prows. Right, so some people have, there's a, some people have had their heads spin, ourselves included, over the, the lack of reference the old gods there, but it could be this that simple, that there, there's no priests, so there wouldn't be any tied to prows, therefore he's not going to see them impaled on the Iron Throne vision. Whatever interpretations turn out to be accurate, it's clear even now that Euron wants no obstacles in binding others to him, not even gods. <laughs> there are no gods to fear. The only thing to fear is the crow's eye. If he defies all the gods, kills their priests, all while suffering no penalty, well, that's making a statement. No one's stopping him. The gods aren't lifting a finger, so... On to the Drowned God's will. Aaron awakens from his first set of dreams, screaming and pissing himself. But he remains strong, reminding himself that the nightmares were a product of evening shade. And he just goes right back to praying. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't see it as prophetic, though he may later if he sees his dreams become reality. At this point, he has yet to learn that Euron has killed three brothers. He still hasn't seen the Valyrian steel armor, and he doesn't know that Victorian has sailed for Slaver's Bay. Yeah, at this point, he still has a fair amount of resolve. Eventually, he prays for deliverance. But before that, he remembers the spiritual experience he had just before his imprisonment. 
You know, we often wonder how much of Aaron's dreams are projections and how much are evidence of the supernatural, and that comes up again here. Mingled with the distant roar of song and celebration coming up from the beach, he'd heard the faint creak of longships settling on the strand. He heard the keening of the wind and now whines. He heard the pounding of the waves, the hammer of his gods calling him to battle. And there and then, the drowned god had come to him once more, his voice welling up from the depths of the sea. And, my good and faithful servant, you must tell the Ironborn that the Crow's Eye is no true king, that the sea stone chair by rights belong to... 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 Is the drowned god a giant tease, or is this just the mind of a zealot hearing what it wants? I definitely lean towards the latter. After all, he doesn't even get an answer. What do you think? <laughs> the latter. Okay. The latter. <laughs> Atheist even Westeros. <laughs> <laughs> now, Aaron fills in the blank with Victorian should marry Asha, taking a page from the Targaryens, I guess. He goes full incest. Never go full incest. <laughs> <laughs> now, ironically... Asha suggested a less gross version of this arrangement, offering to support Victorian in the king's moot if he would name her his hand to the king. Yeah, when she first broaches the subject with him, before the king's moot, obviously, Victorian thinks she's suggesting marriage. And immediately he starts to look at her differently. Of course, Aaron blames Asha for not backing Victorian, when in fact Asha was the only one willing to compromise. <laughs> to be fair, Aaron probably knew nothing of her attempt at compromise. That's true, he didn't know that. Interestingly, though, all four of these characters are point of views, and none of them are in great shape. Victorian is sailing into battle and betrayal. Theon and Asha are prisoners of Stannis, and Aaron is tied to a prow. <laughs> Despite the current state of affairs, perhaps in the very end, Euron will be slain, and Asha will rule after all, or be Theon's hand. <laughs> yeah, Aaron doesn't think of Theon as an option, because he thinks Theon is dead. One wonders what Aaron would think if he knew the truth, though. Yeah, it might not matter much. Yeah. Aaron is a man of faith, and it's hard to have much faith in the man that Theon has become, thanks to Ramsay. Plus, Stannis' lords are calling for Theon's death, so he could just make this point moot by dying on us. <laughs> whatever happens, whatever whether Aaron lives to see it or not, well, it's hard to bet on the survival of a guy <laughs> in his position either. <laughs> for Aaron, it's a dream at best, and his dreams have been pretty bad lately. And Euron is ever creative in making them worse. Yeah. On that note, let's move on to Falia Flowers. She's the bastard daughter of Lord Humphrey Hewitt, formerly of Oakenshield. Falia is only 17 or 18, and she was treated badly by her father's family, but then turned the tables on them when Euron took her castle. Her story is a microcosm of Euron's, in a way. At first, she's cruel, so it's easy to hate her. When it becomes clear her family was cruel to her for years before, it's harder to hate her. You don't approve of what she's what she does, but you hate her less. When she speaks of trusting Euron, then you feel sorry for her, because you know suffering is coming. Euron checks off all those boxes as well, except that he sees it coming. He's not naive. Yeah. <laughs> or, but he was at a time. Yeah, yeah, he seems terrible when we first meet him. <clears throat> then we realize that he was molested and traumatized, and he seems less bad. Then you see him suffer at Euron's hands and show tenderness to a naive girl, and we feel sorry for him, too, or at least we did. Yeah, woman. His chains clinked when he moved. Run. He will hurt you. He will kill you. Now, that line was particularly epic to hear George R. R. Martin read. His delivery was so ominous. And then when he says Falia's next line, which is, silly, he won't, it was hilarious, if deeply tragic. And, of course, Aaron was right. 
Thalia ended up naked and mute, strapped to the prow of the silence like the figurehead itself. Mm. And her visit was no accident. It was the one time someone other than one of Euron's mutes brought him food. She was capable of speaking. Emphasis on the was capable. Yeah. Now, on top of his sadness at, his, at her own pending death, the rest of what she had to say was crushing to him as well. He learned how far he was from home and that Victorian was even further away, that he had gone east for the Dragon Queen. Soon after, Euron came and revealed his brother's murders. Priests of various faiths began to share his dungeon, and he began to come to terms with the fact that no one even knew he was there. His own followers thought him to be in hiding, and that's what everybody else thinks. Aaron remains unbroken, but by now, after all this, after failure, after learning what happened to Victarion, he does learn, yearn, <laughs> for the release of death. Yeah, Aaron, Euron knows this and teases him with the notion, holding a dagger to his neck before condemning him to live. He knows, as Aaron does, that life is torture and death is an end to that, and he will not grant it. Instead, Euron decides that this latest round of psychological torment played out over the course of several months has prepared Aaron for another round of Evening Shade. He saw his brother on the Iron Throne again, but Euron was no longer human. He seemed more squid than man, a monster fathered by a kraken of the deep, his face a mass of writhing tentacles. Beside him stood a shadow in woman's form, long and tall and terrible, her hands alive with pale white fire. Dwarves capered for their amusement, male and female, naked and misshapen, locked in carnal embrace, biting and tearing at each other as Euron and his mate laughed and laughed and laughed. Euron becoming a squid monster is interesting, and it may speak to him losing his humanity. It's also just straight Cthulhu. That's straight H.P. Lovecraft stuff right there. Super creepy, super awesome. Not nearly the first time, many times, George references H.P. Lovecraft and Cthulhu. This one is one of the more blatant ones, I think. <laughs> yeah, and, and here we also see the dwarves yet again, though it isn't clear if we're seeing one pair or several. If they are still meant to represent the lords and ladies of Westeros, then we're seeing Euron and his mate dominating them all. That's simple. Yeah. So perhaps we're meant to see that Westeros tearing itself apart is only going to make it easier for them to conquer. Mm -hmm. If it is merely the one pair of dwarves, could it be Daenerys and Young Griff? We'll see, I guess. I'm thinking multiple pairs of dwarves myself, but yeah, I admit both are certainly possible. If Danny is one of the dwarves, though, then she can't be the long and tall woman, who frankly stands out as the most in this dream. Speaking of that long and tall woman, user glass table girl, or at arithmetric, who we met at Balticon, who was yeah. awesome, <laughs> came up with, so we have cold hands north of the wall, and now in Aaron's vision, we have a hot hands for Euron. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to go with hot hands for the shadow woman. But another name that I've liked for her comes from something like a lawyer of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, the Apocalypse Maiden. Mm, Apocalypse <laughs> Maiden. That's another good band name, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have these great nicknames taken care of, but it's the identity of this hot hands figure that we want even more. We won't get it, but we can run through some possibilities and make ourselves feel like we're closer to the answer. <laughs> the answer probably won't come until the winds of winter, let's be honest. However, there's a lot of possibilities. Daenerys is the first one and probably the most likely, but by no means a slam dunk. Uh, she relates things to the prophecy fear angle a lot uh, from Aaron's perspective. Uh, that's an important thing to remember. It may seem out of character for Daenerys to be seen laughing with Euron over a scene of destruction. That's We know Danny isn't like that. <laughs> but Aaron doesn't know anything about her at all. And if he's been told that that's who Euron wants to 
Mary, then he may imagine that she's like Euron in a way, or at least he can imagine that he would, you know, have a nightmare like that. It yeah. makes sense. Yeah, exactly. It's a nightmare of sorts. He's not exactly going to be seeing the best case scenario. Exactly. And we have the obvious fire imagery with Daenerys. Uh, now, here's a quote from A Game of Thrones, Daenerys 9. Ghosts lined the hallway, dressed in the faded raiment of kings. In their hands were swords of pale fire. They had hair of silver and hair of gold, and hair of platinum white, and their eyes were opal and amethyst, tourmaline and jade. Well, it could be more metaphorical, however. Yeah, maybe it refers not to a human, but to a dragon. Viserion. Yeah. From the Winds of Winter, Tyrion II. The dragon caught one burning body just as it began to fall, crunching it between his jaws as pale fires ran across his teeth. Viserion is white, dragons are hermaphroditic, so that could be explained why it's a female uh, that we're seeing and then the shadow. However, in also in Tyrion 2, uh, the Winds of Winter, Rhaegal is circling, and Viserion is in the city. So maybe it's Rhaegal. Eh, it's yeah. hard to tell. Yeah. Uh, another metaphorical choice is Dragonbinder, which has white fire. From the Drowned Man, a feast for crows. And now the glyphs were burning brightly, every line and letter shimmering with white fire. Yeah, interesting stuff. But maybe Hot Hands refers to the Night's Queen. The yeah. others have been associated with white fire in John Picaccio's Art of Them, which George R. R. Martin has said is one of the most accurate pieces, per Elio Garcia. And there are lots of references to the others as white or pale shadows. Yeah, now Maester Eamon, that Maester Eamon quote, rather, mentions both bleeding stars and white shadows. Why hands, though? The woman standing for the Great Other is a related idea to Night's Queen. But the problem with both here is that there is no ice or snow in any of the damp hair's visions or dreams. Pale fire in general is kind of a stretch to relate to the others. I know uh, cold can burn like fire. We've heard that concept before. But still, I would think it would be more direct than this. I, I don't yeah. you know. Another suggestion that we've seen a lot is Cersei. But it does seem like it would be green fire in her case. Yeah, wildfire. <laughs> <laughs> now, the dwarf imagery is an interesting thing to look at as well. And that fits in interestingly as well as, you know, how it works with these other things. Yeah, we specifically, we mention it because it might relate to Cersei and her mm -hmm. fascination with dwarfs. Eh? Yep. But another off-suggested woman is Melisandre. After all, she was red and terrible and red. That's from the prologue of A Clash of Kings. Now, generally, there's just a lot of very obvious fire and shadow imagery related to Melisandre. But the problem there is red isn't... Red doesn't fit. It's pale white fire. Yeah. Uh, but our, but it, Melisandre could still work. Here's another uh, catch. This one from our friend Lucifer Means Lightbringer. John 6 in A Dance with Dragons. The mist rose from her pale flesh, and for a moment it seemed as if pale sorceress flames were playing about her fingers. Hot hands. There you go. The pale fire references extend to R'hllor as well in Davos 6, Storm of Swords. We thank you for the pure white fire of his goodness. There's a couple of references to white fire in association with Melisandre and R'hllor. Mm -hmm. Melisandre also sees lots of skulls in her point of view chapter visions. She probably sees them in her other visions too, but we only see them mm -hmm. close up in, in her own chapter. This probably doesn't relate to Euron sitting on a pile of skulls in one of the visions, because skulls are a really common imagery, after all. But, but still, worth pointing out. Yeah. yeah. Also worth pointing out are these other contenders for hot hands. Now, Quaithe is associated with shadow and works with pale flames of glass candles, and it's also possible that hot hands is a metaphor for the glass candles themselves, alternatively. Right. Quaithe is associated with Karth and the, you know, and the warlocks, 
Is Quaith working against Daenerys? Were her words to da Daenerys a trick? Yeah, I've seen an interesting point raised that the people on their way to Daenerys might not necessarily be a threat, especially compared to Euron. So yeah, I mean, that's what Quaith says. Beware of all of them. And in a prior version of the chapter where that's mentioned, it was released early back in the day. I don't remember exactly when, but that prophecy was written differently. It was it said Crow and Kraken, and now it says Kraken and Dark Flame. Crow would have been Euron, so she was warning about him in an original version of the vision. But maybe back then, when George wrote it, he actually had he planned for Euron to go to her directly. I don't know, but it said Crow and Kraken, which means yeah. Victorian and Euron. So it's all very confusing, yeah. but it right. also goes to show that there's uh, a lot of possibilities. Yeah, and the wording in all these visions makes a world of difference. Yeah, just a slight yeah. change to the to the wording would could completely change our outlook. Yeah. So another possible connection here might be to the Maiden Maid of Light, who is the mother of the line of emperors of the Great Empire of the Dawn. Euron may parallel the story of the Bloodstone Emperor, especially in concert with Daenerys, who likewise may parallel the Amethyst Empress. More on that whole concept and idea in the Euron episode, as well as in our Great Empire of the Dawn episode coming within the next few months or so. Yeah. Uh, too big of a rabbit hole to get into here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, one other woman that Euron might interact with is Melora Hightower, the Mad Maid. Maiden's Day is associated with white, and she is rumored to be working with magic, so maybe there's something there. She would be long and tall and terrible due to her home atop the high tower, and Euron is going there. Eh. Mm hmm. That's true. Uh, it definitely could fit. As you may be able to tell by how we ran through these ideas without expressing much confidence in most of them, we were kind of like, eh, it might work. That's, that's kind of how we responded to all of them. <laughs> it's, so you can see why it's a tough call at this point. We really have gone pretty deep with some of the possibilities that we really don't even think are that strong. But that's partly because we don't want to, you know, we're, unbiased. We don't want to be unbiased, and like we said, this, there could slightly be slightly biased. Slightly biased. This chapter could change too. There could, you know, yeah. we, we don't want to say definitively what we think, only to find the chapter will be <laughs> a little different later. Uh, but I, that said, I do think Daenerys is the strongest possibility. Uh, Melisandre would probably be my second choice. I would agree. Maybe switched for me. Okay, you think Melisandre number one? Maybe a little switched. I could see a that. Interesting concept. But anyways, uh, yeah. now that we've looked at the Dampera's dreams individually. We should look at them as a whole. Yeah, let's let's recap them because we kind of we really picked them apart and kind of took them line by line. But yeah, yeah, we should look at them as a whole. So Vision One starts with the Yuri corpse and the molestation memories, and then Yurgon turns into Euron. We see Euron on a mound of skulls with dwarves capering in the forest burning. He speaks to Aaron and blows the horn. There are dragons and krakens and sphinxes that come out and bow to him, and then Euron is on the Iron Throne with the gods impaled. Now, the second vision has longships of the Iron Mord adrift and burning, kraken-faced Euron sitting on the Iron Throne. Behind him is the shadow of a woman with more dwarfs capering. Beside as, him. Sorry, beside him is a woman, a shadow of a woman, more dwarfs capering as Euron and shadow woman laugh. There's the drowning dream where Euron wakes three different times thinking that he's awoken only to find himself still in a dream. It's a dreamception thing. Mm -hmm. I wonder there's any significance to the waking of three times to yeah, that number or any at all. It's, but. Yeah, it's, it's definitely worth considering. And there's one part of Aaron's second, or Aaron's second vision that we've saved. We'll get to that in a minute. Looking at all these things in a whole, it's really, what I think is, is, is going on here is we're seeing that Euron is really a whole new sort of villain. You know, he's like, we had, we see th people like Joffrey, we see people like Ramsey. Euron is more of the act three villain where... <laughs> 
in order to compete with Daenerys, he's got to be really big deal. I mean, Daenerys is dragons in this yeah. massive army. Like, who can compete with her right now? Who is yeah. a foil to that? Other than, like, the others themselves with, with snow and ice and winter. In order to have a villain or anyone who can play at Daenerys' level got to have all these these badass things going on. You got to have all these artifacts. You got to have Euron's grand schemes. And that's what we're seeing here. I think Euron is a villain that can play on the level of Daenerys, someone that can usher in the third act of this great epic that we're seeing. <laughs> and I'm really excited for it. <laughs> and none of us really knew that Euron would be this big. It really that's the other thing that this, these visions show us that Euron is a really major character. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that's huge. So, it's almost like he's bringing back the... It's like he learned something when he was in the East. <laughs> he, he spent all that time in the East, and he's coming to bring that sort of style of government back to the West, which is the god-king, the god-emperor, you know, the, mm -hmm. the complete and total ruler, the uh, god-on-earth ruling over mankind. More Not on that, and you're on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not like a man elevated above other men or anything like that, but a whole, he's trying to set himself up as just a superior being, you know. It's really, mm -hmm. really a whole other thing. So I think it's really cool. I think it's really epic. I'm excited to see where it goes. But like I said, there's one thing we left off. There's one part of the visions that we saved for last because of how well it might fit in with a few other topics... It connects quite a few dots, you could say. It might even spell the end of the Ironborn, at least their way of life. He saw the longships of the Ironborn adrift and burning on a boiling, blood-red sea. Yeah, now this looks like defeat, but since it is followed by Euron sitting victorious, it does seem to conflict. That could be the point. Euron on the Iron Throne could come with a high cost in Ironborn lives, which he doesn't care about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when we see something burning in a vision, it's hard not to consider dragon fire. Burning ships? Well, that can happen without dragons, but a boiling sea. Now that really sounds like dragons. Yeah, you can't just make the sea boil without <laughs> massive heat. And Where else would that come from? Dragon mm -hmm. seems like a very, very likely culprit. Defeat or defeats at the hands of a dragon or dragons could be in their future, meaning the Ironborn's future, even if Euron gets a dragon of his own. For example, Victorian could use, use, <laughs> could lose some ships to dragon fire at the Battle of Fire. And then he could use some ships. Yeah, then he could use some new ships, yeah. <laughs> yeah, now Victorian doing the dangerous work while Euron sits above laughing sounds about right. Yeah, that, that is what's happening. Euron is kind of a puppet master mm -hmm. here, and Victorian is dancing on his strings, even though he mm -hmm. dances for no man, according to him. Mm -hmm. Now, the idea of a blood-red sea. This is really interesting. It appears elsewhere, and yeah. look who it connects to. Yeah. Melisandre, a dance with dragons. I saw towers by the sea, submerged beneath a black and bloody tide. That is where the heaviest blow will fall. Mel thinks that this means Eastwatch by the sea will be hit the hardest. Uh, she's thinking about where the others might attack the wall. And she says this to John and others. But she's been wrong quite a few times, as we all know. Yeah, in fact, she even admits to herself that she didn't see Eastwatch. She's been there and knows what it looks like. But she just chalks that up to visions being imperfect. <laughs> this just shows you why Melisandre, by the, as an aside, why she gets things wrong. She's like, oh, that's Eastwatch. Yeah, that's what it is. It's gotta be Eastwatch. We think she's just wrong. The location's wrong. She sees something that isn't there and calls it Eastwatch. But really, it's probably just a different location. Yeah, black and bloody could definitely be Euron. His colors are black and red. Black and so, red. So, is this instead <laughs> Old Town that we are seeing? I think so. I think yeah. def definitely think it could be. Um, it's my favorite choice. Mm -hmm. When Jojen foresaw the Ironborn attack on Winterfell, he doesn't say anything about tides, but he does repeatedly refer to the sea coming and people drowning. It's very similar imagery for the Ironborn coming. Yeah. 
And then there's this, when Tyrion has his chat with Makoro in Tyrion 8, A Dance with Dragons. Others seek Daenerys too. Have you seen these others in your fires? He asked, warily. Only their shadows, Makoro said. One most of all. A tall and twisted thing with one black eye and ten long arms, sailing on a sea of blood. Mel's vision is less certain, but this one from Makoro is 100% Euron. There can be no doubt. He has one black eye, and Krakens have ten arms, and there's that sea of blood again. There's a lot of things that could that could mean, which is why we've been saving it for the very end. Oh yeah. Part four of Sacrifice and Bait. In his saner moments, Aaron questioned why the crow's eye was collecting priests, but he did not think that he would like the answer. I feel the same way, except I think I will like the answer. Partly because we've been we've thought about this a lot, and all the ideas we have are awesome. One of those ideas we have is that we don't have any idea, and that what George actually gives us will be cooler than anything we've imagined. <laughs> yeah, but we don't have that, so let's guess. Yeah, let's guess. No, I'll not kill you tonight. A holy man with holy blood. I may have need of that blood later. For now, you are condemned to live. So he claims holy blood is important and seems to show that he means it later on. In the dungeon at the Isle of Pigs, Aaron was alone for a time, but eventually other holy men were made to join him. Three wore the robes of septons of the Greenlands and won the red raiment of a priest of R'hllor. The last was hardly recognizable as a man. Both his hands had been burned down to the bone, and his face was a charred and blackened horror where two blind eyes moved sightlessly above the cracked cheeks dripping pus. He was dead within hours of being shackled to the wall, but the mutes left his body there to ripen for three days afterwards. Many of them are in much worse shape than Aaron. The red priest is burned, and the septon seem to have their tongues cut out. This seems to be mockery. Burning a red priest is like drowning a follower of the drowned god, which Euron jokes about earlier. Yeah, Septon's being made into mutes might be mockery of the Silent Sisters or something like that. That's a good point. Euron does do that a lot, of course, such as to Phalia later and the lesser members of his crew, but he does not cut out the tongues of his brother or these warlocks. Last were two warlocks of the east, with flesh as white as mushrooms and lips the purplish blue of a bad bruise, all so gaunt and starved that only skin and bones remained. One had lost his legs. The mutes hung him from a rafter. Pree! He cried as he swung back and forth. Pree! Pree! Now, is the man saying pree a la Hodor or hmm. Reek's repetition? Or did Piat Pree betray them? Oh, yeah, he's Preek. <laughs> That's so good. I love it so, <laughs> so much. Wrong. <laughs> wrong. Or did they eat him? Is that why they're saying it? <sighs> Piat Pree and three other warlocks had ill designs on Daenerys, but they were captured by Euron. He fed one to the others after starving them, and apparently another one is gone now, and, yeah. and a leg. And maybe they ate him too. <laughs> but these ones are starved now, it appears. That's why they're saying Pree. They want more Pree. Yeah, give eat. us more Pree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Aaron, on the other hand, was being fed terrible food, but food. He's not starving. Yeah, and the burned priest dies shortly after, and no one seems to care. Aaron expects to die after being tied to the prow, but there are reasons to think he will live. The other priests in Felia, however, we don't have any hope for them. Yeah. But the question is, why are they tied to prows? Is this Euron practicing some good old human sacrifice? Does he want their actual blood cutting their throats as part of summoning a kraken or two? Euron's captains each slit the throat of a priest, let's say. 
That's a lot of blood. Not enough to literally turn the seas red, but it's enough to qualify for the repeated sea of blood metaphor. Uh, one of Euron's top captains says this. Words are wind, but blood is power. We have given thousands to the sea, and he has given us victories. But he's speaking of common blood. Euron makes it seem like there's power in holy blood, and we have heard many times that there's power in king's blood. So let's move on to king's blood or kin's blood. It's a bit curious that Phalia and Aaron are tied to the prow of silence. It could be that Phalia will die and Aaron will not. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. We all die. Phalia Flowers does have king's blood in her, sort of, via her pregnancy. That's Euron's blood. Yeah, if that matters. If that well. matters. Yeah, I'm not sure that it does. I tend to be on the doubtful side, re king's blood. And I think Aziz is a little doubtful, too. Yeah. But I think that being his family definitely makes it a more significant sacrifice. The kin's blood. Even with Euron not actually seemingly caring much about his children. Yeah. But let's talk about the potential significance of holy blood. We, we shouldn't dismiss the idea just because it's not clear what it means. Many priests and priestesses might actually have magical powers. Thus, their, ma their blood might be magical and carries greater significance than regular blood. Maybe? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think of skin changes, for instance. Their blood would certainly be worth more, you would think. I would think so. You would think. Not that priests of the lore are skin changers, but the, the comparison maybe relates. Yeah, I mean, uh, Melisandre is certainly some other being yeah, entirely. I true. mean, her blood is something special. But... Yeah. However, though, we have never seen this applied to priests before. We found no talk of this prior in the series. Yeah, kings, yeah. Holy blood, no. Yeah, we, we couldn't find any example yeah. anywhere so, else in the series. So this is totally that new. alone is really noteworthy. I still think, or rather hope, that somehow this all leads to a real kraken. <laughs> if so, will it have anything to do with the actual holy blood, or will just any blood do? I don't think the krakens know the difference, but maybe. Who knows? They're, they might be magical beings. Uh, or maybe does, maybe Euron simply wants people to think that bringing a kraken requires priest blood. Yeah. Now, some of these ideas, again, we're going to explore further in the Euron episode. It's just too much for right now. But one of the biggest meta questions that we can ask is... Will there be another Aaron Dampere chapter? Does Euron want Aaron alive or dead? Hmm. Earlier he says he might have need of his blood, but he also says... Kill my own little brother, blood of my blood, born of the loins of Kelon Greyjoy, and who would share my triumphs? Victory is sweeter with a loved one by your side. Is this taunting or, I mean, it's, it's just hard to tell. Euron is just, he's got, he's playing all these games with his brother and he's not an honest guy. <laughs> Here's something that stuck out to us though. Worship me and I will raise you up to be my priest. Now, Euron knows how hard he's been on Aaron his whole life. And I think he recognizes his brother's immense inner strength and stubbornness. Uh, you know, Euron's experience at breaking people. So he's probably, he might be slightly impressed by the fact that he's broken all these other guys and hasn't broken his brother. Maybe that's what he's aiming for. Just as he's kind of taken Victorian and manipulated him and made use of his seamanship, bravery, skill in battle, sending him out to on a dangerous voyage, he maybe wants Aaron's resolve and charisma on his side. With everything, wherever Euron perceives usefulness, he enslaves it. Yeah. Now, also, though Aaron is treated terribly, he is treated better than the other holy men. He hasn't been burned or starved or mutilated. It's also doubtful that Euron is feeding the other shit at evening, whether that's uh, better or worse, we don't know. Uh, <laughs> but the best evidence might come from George R. R. Martin's live journal, where a fan named Rasmus B. Wayne asked him, With the use of the word the, are you implying that there will be only one Dampere chapter in Winds? Martin wrote a single word reply, no. He's not saying he won't die, he's just saying he's not implying he will. 
I think. But if I had to bet, I'd say he lives for at least one more chapter. Euron is just too important for us not to have a POV at his location. Yeah, but if we're wrong, and if he does die sooner, we may have seen it foreshadowed. Yet again, Daenerys' own Shade of the Evening experience entwines with the Forsaken. Here's, here's another quote from Daenerys IV in The Clash of Kings. Her silver was trotting through the grass to a darkling stream beneath a sea of stars. A corpse stood at the prow of a ship, eyes bright in his dead face, gray lips smiling sadly. A blue flower grew from a chink in a wall of ice and filled the air with sweetness. Mother of dragons, bride of fire. This is part of the marriage segment of the prophecy. We're going to go into the best candidates and explain the pros and cons for each quickly. Now, Aaron, the argument for him is obvious, given everything we've said. Plus, he is a gray joy. Now, this applies to all the gray joys. Aaron isn't exactly a marriage prospect, however, and he's not really standing. He's strapped. Yeah. Gray lips smiling sadly is where we get the gray joy idea. That's yes. been tossed around for years. And it's funny how, well, it's so many different Ironborn seem to qualify for this at least a little bit. So, Euron is also possible. The use of the word corpse has interesting implications, and he is a marriage prospect for Danny, uh, not one she wants, but <laughs> Ed, I guess we can call him a prospect of sorts. <laughs> Another Greyjoy contender is Victorian. Uh, remember the weird moment in his final chapter in Dance where it actually changes away from his POV to a, you know, a narrator sort of uh, situation? You can find more on that in our Hellhorn episode. Yeah, we talk about that at length there, so maybe the idea of a corpse fits Victorian better. Um... He is also a marriage prospect in his mind, hmm. also not to Danny's awareness. <laughs> John Connington is a very strong possibility, the only possibility we have that isn't a Greyjoy. Theon is also a possibility, but he's probably the least likely yeah, of the Greyjoys. doesn't relate to any marriage or prows of ships, or he's quite landlocked. Yeah. And John Connington, of course, relates to marriage in that he has young Griff. Definitely. A little stretch, but interesting. Um, let's move on to our outro. Indeed. Now, this chapter is incredible, but it's also really dark. So dark that some of the jokes may have gotten past you. But we have heightened detection abilities when it comes to hidden humor, especially puns. I left the islands in the hands of old Eric Ironmaker and sealed his loyalty with the hand of our sweet Asha. Now, what's the joke you say? He literally sealed it. <laughs> now, from The Wayward Bride, A Dance with Dragons, Triss Botley said that the crow's eye had used a seal to stand in for her at her wedding. So I guess we should have added has a sense of humor to the Euron section. Sealed his loyalty yeah, sealed. with a seal. Yeah. yeah. Jesus. Really good. <laughs> <laughs> Another sneaky pun comes from Phalia Flowers, who is so besotted with Aaron, with Aaron, with Euron, that she's said to crow her words <laughs> at Aaron. It's like she's parroting, but it's a different bird. Yeah, also, crowing. also funny here is that Martin just can't keep from food references, writing shapeless things as big as hams. <laughs> To not describe his swollen feet, yeah. Not appetizing his hams, though. <laughs> yeah, no one's going to be eating ham for a few days after hearing <laughs> that. Also, there's, if I had the tongue of every man who cursed me, I could make a cloak of them. That's Euron speaking, of course, but dude, you already have enough <laughs> tongues to make cloaks without people cursing at you. You just do that. You just cut tongue tongues cloak. out. Yeah, yeah. Cloak tongue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now Martin mentioned that he might change things. Uh, there's quite a few mistakes that he surely noticed as well. For example, the most obvious one was Uragon was written as Urathon throughout it. 
As in Eurothon Nightwalker. So let the Eurothon Nightwalker theories reign. Yeah, we were all looking at each other funny during the <laughs> reading, like, that's not Eurothon. No, it's no, Eurogon. No. We all knew. <laughs> but it was funny to hear, like, wait, Eurothon, what's going on here? There's also the one of the one of the my go-to examples for chapters being pre-released and then changed. The biggest thing that was changed from any of these chapters that I'm aware of was during the A Dance with Dragons Tyrio, Tyrio? Tyrion Illyrio scenes, which span two different chapters, well, two different chapters of them on the road. The earlier version of this chapter, Tyrion overhears the word sword when Illyrio is speaking to either Halden or Duck. And he also hears the word crown and king, I believe the other words are. And so, of course, people, once I'm packing the Blackfire theories there... The word sword made people think of the sword Blackfire, obviously. But taking that reference out obviously changed the information in that chapter a lot. Of course, us being aware of the mention of sword still makes us think that. But that's just one word taken out that changes a massive amount. Just imagine one, just a word, changing sphinxes in that one vision to ducks. You know, that would be silly. But just to, to Griffins. That, to Griffins. That would be a massive change into just what we've done to research it and what, what, what we would think about it. So, that's the problem. This chapter is not officially released. It's only been read. Yeah. yeah. Moving on from that, though, I think it's really cool to consider that the Victorian chapter is going to be a POV during the Battle of Fire, which is going to be epic, while Asha and Theon are there to witness the Battle of Ice again. Epic. Now, Aaron has a front prow seat to the <laughs> Battle of Blood, which we've been calling it, and I think we're going to see it. I just want to take a moment to highlight front, front prow seat, <laughs> which is just really good, and everything I like about Aziz all rolled up into one. Front prow seat. I... Uh, now, moving on, I have to move on from that. <laughs> now, As hard as that is. As hard as that is. Even if we don't see this front prow seat, we should be seeing a lot fewer people complain that the Ironborn are point are pointless or boring. Yeah, look at that. I mean, all these Ironborn chapters have the coolest things happening. Yeah. Whether the Ironborn are relevant to what's happening or not, they're the best witnesses right yeah. now. It used to be, it's funny, we started off with like a bunch of Stark point of views. And now we have more Ironborn point of views than anything. Like, yeah. by far, you know? I mean, there's like four or five of them now, and it's like a third of all the POVs are Ironborn now. It's kind of strange, but, you know... They even took up a huge amount of the World of Ice and Fire. They took up the largest section, yeah. besides Targaryens. It's all starting to make more sense. George has always had these big plans for the Ironborn, and now we're starting to see that the Ironborn weren't just bolted on. They've been a big part of this the whole time. It's just that... They didn't have nearly as much to do in the first two acts of the story. We're moving on to Act 3, the final two or three books, whatever it's going to turn out being. And the Ironborn are clearly going to be a big part of that. So let's let's go to our final thoughts. This He's not Jamie, Aaron. This wasn't a redemption. The Ampere... The Damp Ampere. The Ampere <laughs> is still a bad dude. You know, we don't like him. Nonetheless, we did feel sorry for him. Yeah, whatever he is now, he... Definitely didn't deserve childhood trauma, and being force-fed magical hallucinogens is not justice. Yeah, even horrible people often have reasons for being horrible. It makes them compelling and sympathetic without absolving them of their actions. I don't think Aaron's a good guy. I don't think he's what he, the, the terrible things he's done in his life are justified because he was tra traumatized as a kid. But it makes things more nuanced. It's not just like, oh, he's a horrible person. He deserves to die. No one deserves what Aaron has gone through. I reread The King's Moot, and Aaron's terror at his brother's victory had a much greater impact. It's another perfect example of a reread 
presenting you with much new information because you have a new perspective on the character that the POV is delivering. Euron's, the powerlessness that Aaron feels when thinking about Euron, it was so great. And then Euron becomes king almost out of nowhere. I mean, damn, that is just, wow, that's just soul crushing. Yeah. Now, Aaron was the runt of his Greyjoy generation, the youngest of his brothers to survive childhood, just like Theon. Mm -hmm. And this has implications. Theon and Aaron both have memories of cruel older brothers. In a culture that thrives via preying on the weak, ironborn older brothers going after their younger siblings is surely as common as fishing. I mean, it's common in the real world, even. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the younger siblings are expected to fight back to rise again, hard, harder and stronger. We've all seen the big bully brother who always wins, is finally beaten by the little brother, feel-good story. <laughs> well, that's not what this is. George fed that trope shade of the evening. <laughs> because these little brothers did rise again, harder and stronger, Euron, or rather Aaron and Theon, and they both wound up tortured. And have a lot in common with regard to current circumstances as well. Theon's cruel brothers did him the favor of dying, but Aaron's did not. His life began at Euron's mercy, and that's where we find him now near his life's end. Mm -hmm. Theon's chapter is spent in chains, agonizing. He's hanging from chains in, in a little cabin with Stannis. Held, he's held captive with many northerners and some ravens even, calling for his blood. And his sister is one of them, but she means it as a mercy. Likewise, Aaron spent most of this chapter in chains, and his blood may soon be spilled too, but his life has been spent at his brother's mercy, and there is no one who can save him. Few would even want to. He truly is the Forsaken. We have quite a few people to thank for this episode. Notably, George R. Martin for reading us the chapter at Balticon. What a great experience that was. Thanks to people who helped us work on this and or worked on the transcriptions. Rainy Targaryen from the Westeros.org forums, Poor Quentin, Arithmetric, Hamfast42, Nina Friel, uh, Jeff Hartline from Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, and a little bit of help from Radio Westeros as well. This lot of people gave their thoughts. Of course, this chapter inspired a lot of people to talk and theorize, and it was a lot, it's just a great time. Anyway, also thanks to our bards. That would be Joey Townsend for the intro music and Jesse Kowal for the outro music. Also, thanks to Michael Klarfeld for his awesome video intro. Check him his work out at claradox.de. And also a special shout out to Maester Cassinia and our Patreon supporters, of course. Starting with First Lord Cash Craig, Hand of the King, Lord of Mines, Lord of Makers. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and Warden of the West also sitting nearby me while I heard the chapter. Shay was on the other side of the room. <laughs> we had it covered. Also thanks to Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Lord John Reed of Castle Woodbridge, the Lord Borealis, the Light of the North and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. King Beyond the Wall, Rowan at Cantrell, wielder of the Valyrian Spoon, for the night is dark and full of turnips, is taking on the th the Thens, which is quite an endeavor, a bold maneuver for a new King Beyond the Wall. We'll see how that goes. Also, thanks to the Small Council, Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight and Master of Whispers, Grandmaster Saria of the Barrows is Cinder of the Citadel, Lord Robert Jacobs is Master of Coin, Rosie the Clever is Master of Laws, Lord James Tuttle is Master of Ships. 
for lords and ladies in their castles, we start with a special shout out for the great Lord Vladimir the Audacious of Castle Naki. Please raise a glass of Arvor Gold to his legacy. He has passed, establishing a great dynasty of his daughters, Lady Dyrell is the Alpha Patron, Lady D Lily the Decorator, and Lady Rose the Steady. Also, his grandchildren, lordlings, and ladies, Dylan, Nikki, Ashley, Sean, Michael, Jason, Alice, and Spencer, and the littlest lords, his great-grandsons, Logan I and Logan II. Also, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt, Lord of Castle Ganges, Kabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Mary Meg is Lady of the Bloody Stepstones, Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort, Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose, Jeffrey the Unflinching is Lord of Sand Lake, Lord Greybay is of the Queen City, Lord Ryan is of Castle Stonegate and Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass, Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep, Lord Brandon Slate is the Norse Hammer and Harbinger of the Old Gods. Lady Bram is Light of Winter's Garden, Beacon of the Northwest. Ashland Winter is the Hawk's Eye and Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is the leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. Lady Cachon Vallant is of Swine Harbor. Lord Barone of Hillcrest is Lord of the Halls and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everblazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Donhold. King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. The history of Westeros Kingsguard is commanded by Lord Commander Dubbington, the Red Bear. And last but not least is the history of Westeros Night's Watch, commanded by Lord Commander George the Golden, as well as First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, First Builder Lyanna Kelly, the Lady of Steelhold, and First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom. Thanks to everyone else who supported the show in a variety of ways. You can certainly leave us a review on iTunes or like and subscribe to us on iTunes and Facebook and YouTube and all the different places that, <laughs> that you might think we would appear. We probably do. And we will be back soon with another episode. Keep an eye out for that. And until next time, Valar Morgulls.